Abbey. Today we are going to be talking about Downton Abbey A New Era, which is the second Downton Abbey film. And uh, we are really excited to be here. I'm Teresa in Brooklyn. I'm Brandy in Los Angeles. And I'm Shannon in Seattle, but wishing I was in the south of France. I'm sure that all of our fans and audience have seen this film already at least once, perhaps twice. So we just want you all to know that it's going to be full of spoilers. Because the first thing we're going to do is we're going to pour one out, pour your tea, pour your cordial for Violet, who has passed on. I'm going to pour out a big shot of whiskey because I love that her final last line was still putting someone in their place. (laughs) I really thought this was like a very fitting send off after it's been sort of hinted at for so long. Like I had just rewatched the first movie when she has her whole like conversation with Mary and basically is like, I'm, I'm going to die soon. Like get ready to be the dragon lady of the family. And I wasn't sure if they were going to go through with it, but I'm really glad they did. And maybe it sounds morbid to say so, but I mean, Maggie Smith is 87 years old. I'm glad she got to do the send off for this like iconic character and then it didn't end up being a situation where they dragged it out so long that, you know, I hope she, I hope Maggie Smith has another decade or more in her. But if she doesn't, it would have been a shame, you know, to not do it on screen, to do it properly. Yeah, it was really nice. And I, I don't know about you guys, but I was so teary eyed watching it. I was like trying to control my breathing so I wouldn't start sobbing in the middle of it. When they lowered the flag to half mast, I almost <laughs> lost it. When Edith and Mary hugged. I mean, and I, the part that got me was when she told Lord Grantham that he was nicer than her and that she always like admired that about him. And that's part just killed me. And also the the scene where um, Isabel is in her morning clothes and sits down alone at the bench. Oh my God, I'm going to start crying right now. Honestly, these people are really good actors. You know, I don't think Julian gives them a lot to work with in their scripts, but they really are very good actors. So this whole last montage, which was almost completely silent, was so moving to me. Um, Just seeing them all reacting in their own ways. Um, And I loved Isabel. I loved how her body looked and how her face looked. Rest in power, Dowager Countess. I hope she never expected to find a late-in-life bestie, you know? And she's had so much loss. Their friendship is one of the best parts of the entire story. And, like, even Isabel's, like, you know, I'm gonna, I'm just going to start crying. <laughs> <laughs> it's up there with Dumbledore for me. It really is. <laughs> to lose an icon like this. Shannon, I don't remember where you mentioned this, but the whole... Thing about like finding love in later life and finding friendship in later life. I can't think of another show that has this many characters finding love over the age of 40 and even 50. You know, I mean, it's so many at this point. I mean, everybody's getting a partner in this show, <laughs> even Mrs. Patmore. There isn't another show that even has this many characters. <laughs> and yeah, maybe part of me was a little like, oh yeah, nobody can be happy unless they're paired off. And you know, I'm still the one who thinks it's ridiculous that Mrs. Hughes and Carson got married because they have no chemistry. No, I'm anti that marriage. 
But at the same time, I mean, as everything was coming together and all the cuteness was happening with different couples and everyone just had something going on, I was that last like 30 minutes. I was like, is this how Marvel fans felt when like all the people came to fight Thanos? Like just like pure fan service for me. I cried when that happened too. <laughs> it is, it's pure fan service and I'm here for it. Like I just, this is our Avengers. It is. It totally is. Does this mean the granny is Iron Man? Saying goodbye to the one who started it all for sure. Yeah. My big question is, if Maggie Smith gets nominated for an Oscar, will she choose to not go to the ceremony just <laughs> well, like she did absolutely. for all her Emmys? There's no way she's setting foot in America again in this lifetime. Because <laughs> I will laugh so hard if it's her face up there. Like, could not attend after how many times she was nominated and won Emmys. I mean, it's just hilarious. I think it could happen. She has a long relationship with Julian. You know, they've done bunch of stuff together and um she just seems so grumpy about <laughs> these movies um but you know she shows up and does it gives it her all and maybe she'll come back as a ghost for downton abbey 3 the haunting it would be funny to see a horror spin off of this that would be very interesting i mean the other thing that is my favorite thing about this movie obviously is you know Thomas is my favorite character I've been rooting for him for a long time and I've been saying that I want him to go to America and now it's finally happening I was so happy but I also like didn't trust that it was really happening until the very end when you could see that like Carson was still there as the butler because they had that final scene of Thomas like going back and sitting at the desk and I was like I swear to god Julian if you make him choose a life of service (laughs) over going to America with the hot actor and getting paid to quote-unquote dress him. (laughs) (laughs) I won't even say it. It's too easy. Like, my only complaint was that they didn't kiss and I really think they could have gotten away with it in like a, you know, just like a hot, sexy way. Like, in the first movie, I loved his storyline with Ellis and I'm glad that they acknowledged it in this one. And I really thought that that was like, they had like, real like boyfriend chemistry and this one was more just like meet me in the bathroom chemistry (laughs) but I would have been down with that I really would have been down with that Dominic West is is so can I say he's so hot and sexy in this movie he was really well cast he has the vibe he has the like Clark Gable smile totally Clark Gable vibes well I was just so excited I literally I'm sorry, Brandy, I did talk in the audience and I was like, Brandy was right. He's going to America. Now it's not with a cowboy, but he can play a cowboy in a movie. And I also just love the idea of Thomas. I just imagine him in Palm Springs. He's tan. He's at a very sexy pool party. And I'm just so happy for him. And that's what I imagine his future is. In his knit bathing suit. I just loved it. I I think Robert James Collier is really like, undersung as a member of this ensemble of actors Uh, I mean not by me I've been singing his praises for the last 10 years but um finally finally not even a boyfriend for Barrow just happiness for Barrow and I love that Mrs. Hughes and Mary both acknowledge yeah like acknowledge 
That scene with him and Mrs. Hughes. That was really yeah, deep for I, me. I was yeah. on the verge of tears there when she was, you know, comforting him, but trying to be realistic at the same time. It was such like a, it was such a fine line in that scene. And uh, yeah, great performances all around. And, you know, kudos to Julian for giving me 90% of what I wanted. Minus the kiss. I got what I wanted as well, which was Edith going back to her magazine. So I'm just feeling very satisfied. Stop the presses. We're going to the south of France during summer. Yep. Blowing the tiled roof off the villas. Interview with Coco Chanel. Yeah, I'm just, I was just really happy. And I was also happy that Bertie like acknowledged it too. Like it wasn't like some stupid storyline of, you know, you're not home enough. Your son needs you, that kind of stuff. He was like, yeah, you look good doing this. I remember why I fell in love with you in the first place. Because you were a journalist. We didn't see Edith's children, right? Uh, we saw Marigold. I think there was a younger kid. Like, there was, like, a very quick shot of five kids. And I was, like, trying to do the math in my head. I was like, okay, Sibby, George, Caroline, Marigold, and then whatever Edith's first kid or second child with Bertie is that she gets pregnant with in the first movie, like not mentioned at all. Don't know what their name is. The baby's name is Peter. It's mentioned once quickly when she talks about how great her nanny is. And Peter is named after Bertie's cousin, the former Marquis of Hexham. I had to look that up. Because I thought, why did they name him Peter? And then I realized that it was, which is very sweet, I think. He and Bertie were really close, and I think it was really sweet to honor him in that way. I'm glad that you caught that, because I definitely did not. And I definitely was kind of like, how old are all these kids now? Like, I guess the, the only one that really matters in this one is Sibi. I mean, what a complete injustice it would have been if she hadn't inherited a villa. When all the other kids get a property. <laughs> Rich people problems. Well, I actually was touched. I was like, there was so much continuity in this movie from past storylines that made me, it feel felt more of a connective tissue to the show than the last movie. The last movie felt a little random in a lot of the plot lines. But I love that it's like, you know, they were thinking about Sibby and she's kind of this orphan as he's building a new family. I mean, he's, she still her dad, but you know what I mean? She's never going to be part of that line that's going to inherit. And I just, I thought it was really touching to honor Sybil that way. I thought it was nice too. And you know who the extra kid is. It's not baby Peter who for sure got left up north in their castle. It's, um... Anna and uh, Bates's kid. Hanging out in the parlor with all of them? Yeah, that's what they do. The servants' kids grow up with the uh, fancy kids. They all, they're all in the nursery together. My biggest, like, thing that didn't feel realistic in this movie, especially at the end, is all of the servants, like, hugging and with the family and the new baby, you know, Tom's new baby and stuff. And I was like, this just feels... There's still class lines here. That's always the thing with them. Like the number of weddings these servants have been invited to where there's just no way they would actually be attending as guests. But at least in this one, I could believe that they would go to Tom's wedding because he used to be one of them, you know? That's very true. I think that the little trick that Julian has been able to play for so long is... On one hand, the servants are treated really well and they get to go to the weddings and wear Cora's fancy coat to get married in. And at the same time, 
they are completely thrilled to be in service <laughs> for the Crawleys. Like anything for the house. Anything. Yeah. I also rewatched the last couple episodes of season six um, going up into this. And of course, there's the whole storyline about Mosley becoming a teacher, but then he makes the whole speech to his students about like how much he loves being in service to. <laughs> Just like, you know, (laughs) you got to roll your eyes at Julian always having to reinforce that the class lines are totally fair and everyone loves exactly their lot in life. Y'all love this movie? Uh, Yeah. Oh, loved it. Absolutely loved it. It was so much better than the first movie because I rewatched the first movie the night before. And I was like, it just felt kind of farcical, the first movie. And this felt like the heart of Downton that I'd been missing. Yeah, I loved every... So five of us went to see it together in the theater, um, and we all loved it. I mean, we're, like, big fans, all of us, and we all we saw the first movie together, the same group. But this movie ended, and we were all like, oh, my God, this was so great. And the first movie was so not great. <laughs> but this movie is getting bad reviews, which is what? mind-boggling to me. Are they true Downton fans or are they randos? Because you got if you're a true Downton fan, you're going to love this movie. I've read some good reviews by people who start off by saying I am a true Downton fan. But like I was listening to Pop Culture Happy Hour and they claim to be Downton fans, but they were so brutal. No no respect. Is it because they want a movie that's you know, like a movie instead of like a season of television crammed into two hours, which is essentially what this was. They were really criticizing it for not being like a better movie, like all of the things that they could have done that they didn't do and how, you know, the actors had nothing to do and it was embarrassing watching them, you know, do it. They never had anything to do. They literally walk around the same two rooms all the time. (laughs) It was thrilling when we finally got to see the grounds when Mary started going out of the house. Yeah, I, I don't agree with that criticism just because it, you know, it, it delivered on the promise of what it's trying to do. Like, you can't criticize something for trying for you thought it should have been this. That's not what it's trying to do. And I like the way that the two storylines, you know, maybe the back and forth was a little bit whiplashy at times from, like, the movie set to the Riviera, but, like... I did like the way that they both sort of revolved around what was going to be acceptable in the next era for reals this time, not just talking about change with a toaster or a hairdryer or whatever, but like real generational change, passing things on to Mary, considering the children as their next uh, people who are going to be carrying on the family line. You know, like I feel like thematically I understood why all of the storylines were happening. Totally. And let's get serious. They could make these movies forever. I I would pay money to see those children as adults. And it is truly the next generation. And we see Mary in like old age makeup, you know, like they could keep this going for a really long time. And we get to see all the different eras. Of yeah, the, the next one's just down Abbey. This is us. And you know what else? I mean, Julian would be an idiot not to bring Brandy on as his co-screenwriter at this point. Oh my God. She's called it. Has your agent called? I will have them call. You know, I I feel that I would love to write the American spinoff for Thomas. You know, that's really where I would like to be just 
Hollywood loves movies about Hollywood. So let's do it. Let's do, you know, 1930 in Hollywood with Thomas. It's like the Palm Springs episodes of Mad (laughs) Men, but (laughs) 1930s Hollywood. That would be awesome. I would pay money to see that. They could they could go to parties with like Cary Grant and all the other closeted yeah. men in Hollywood at the time. We cast Joan Crawford and all of these people they could be hanging out with. Yeah, I mean it was it was a one big orgy in Hollywood at that point. I mean honestly, <laughs> I don't know if Thomas knows what he's getting himself into. To be perfectly honest, he might not. I mean, he's gonna be shocked for, for how you know, sure of himself of who he is. He hasn't had that much experience, guys. You know, a stolen kiss here or there, you know. he He's going to get a, an education. <laughs> that would be a great movie. Well, I really enjoyed the Hollywood movie being filmed at Downton. I, I was like, okay, this is hokey. But then it was like actually really delightful. I really enjoyed all of it. It was delightful. Hugh Dancy, I mean, come on. If we couldn't have Matthew Good, this was a very, very nice substitute. <laughs> Literally. Okay, but I, can we just take a second? I feel like Mr. Yum Yum has, they've done, they've done him dirty. What, now he's just a bad husband? He's just off on it. What's going on? What's the long story with Mary? Is she going to get a divorce? I'm confused. Well, Matthew Good obviously wants nothing to do with this franchise. <laughs> I mean... They couldn't even get him back for like a two minute appearance at Violet's funeral. So I did. That was shocking. It was like, okay, well, then she obviously should divorce him. He didn't even show up for Granny's funeral. I mean, I actually think that that him like their relationship being a little bit rocky is like a nice way to handle the fact that Matthew Good is not interested in being in this movie. You know, because you've got to, you can't just keep explaining it away. Like, oh, he's at a car rally in Chicago. Like, he's in Istanbul because he'd rather be in Istanbul. And I think that that's just the way their marriage has ended up being. Um, So I kind of appreciated them being pretty open about the problems. And I did enjoy um, Mary being kind of wooed by the film director. I love that, and I want her to take him up on it because I'm my biggest disappointment in the movie is Mary is dressed so oh. dowdy, <laughs> like a spinster, and it's like almost like she's given up. And I'm like, girl, keep going. And you like the pretty men. She's, she's just being professional, okay? Yeah, she is being professional. I love that line though when she says to him, "I like my husband's handsome." I thought that was hilarious. And also, she describes Matthew as like a fairy tale prince, which of course he has been. In another film, yeah. which yeah. is also funny. Um, her evening wear is fabulous, though. And then during the day, she just looks like a librarian. I didn't think it was that bad, but it was a big contrast to the absolutely fabulous things that they were wearing in the south of France, particularly Edith's like poolside blue robe or like blue and orange. Like I was just like, oh my god, that is beautiful. Yes. Oh, she looks fabulous. She looked so gorgeous. It's the scene where she's got that that camera and she's photographing a room or something. That's when she's wearing that like long orange and blue coat and it's like she's wearing it on top of a very loose white like jumpsuit basically. It was chic. You could wear that today. It was so beautiful. But she's always had fantastic clothes. I mean, once she found her place in the world, she's always looked fantastic. 
Although she does wear sort of dumpy, dowdy floral dresses up at Downton also. So I don't know what's with that. It's just being in France. Extra fabulous. But yeah, before we move away from the movie, I, I do think it was it was a really cute storyline. It was the sort of thing that they never would have done on the show version. So I feel like that, that made it fun. Um, and getting to see the servants all dressed up at the end. Oh my gosh. I was dying. It, it was so cute. <laughs> it was, th- that's our event. Yes. I mean, it's just like the fan service was so this good. This should have been called Downton Abbey fan service. <laughs> I mean, yes. And I would have been down for it. I also loved Daisy giving the pep talk to the actress and being like, snap out of it. You know, I thought that was a really fun scene, even though the storyline was like ripped straight out of Singing in the Rain with her voice and every- everything. I can't stand him. And I've never seen that movie, so I thought it was original. <laughs> Spoiler for Singing in the Rain. You do, you do need to see it. It is pretty fantastic. <laughs> Gareth Neem came up with this whole story about how his great-grandfather or something was in the movies and he was involved in a film where this happened because it was common that people with terrible voices couldn't go into talkies. So this storyline is really based on that, not on the movie Singing in the Rain. <laughs> right. I also like I follow a silent film historian on Twitter who always is like getting up in arms and being like there really weren't that many of them who couldn't make the jump because of their voice. Most of them made the jump. It's just you've seen Singing in the Rain and so you think that's what it was like. Well, I I love the ultimate triumph of um, gorgeous movie star when she she decides to go with an American accent. Amazing. It's kind of an insult. It's like, oh, you could never recreate the English manor accent. But American, that old thing, that's so easy. (laughs) It was pretty good, though. Cora coached her. And I thought she was great. And it was, I don't know, it was just fun to see the set that we know, the characters that we know, interact with such a large group of different people. It was just very fun. I don't know how Julian wrangles these scripts with like keeping everybody moving and everybody gets a line and everybody does something to push the story forward. And it's quite a high wire act. I think what he does, uh, I I don't think it's very easy, but, but it, it feels to me, it just feels really natural. Like this, this flow from character to character to character. I think the editing was, is really good and always has been really good for what you're talking about. Following the characters in and out, cutting between these scenes. I mean, I remember when I used to be trying to take notes for the podcast while the show was on and it would be like, I'm going to have to watch this a second time because you literally can't even like type what's happening in the scene before it's cut to another scene. You know, <laughs> They're so quick. They're so short. Um, but when you're watching it, it doesn't feel manic or anything. It all has a purpose. I really noticed how much, you know, we really spent a lot of time downstairs. Whereas, you know, in the Gilded Age, it felt really, you know, uneven. We were upstairs. We barely got to know the servants until really the last few episodes. And I think that, you know, Julian's done such a good job of making the downstairs characters as beloved as the upstairs characters, especially in this movie. What I really loved was the whole like meta commentary going on. There's all this commentary on movie people and filming inside a a great house (laughs) and, and, you know, actors um, being criticized by these characters who are actually actors playing a character. I mean, it was it was just pretty funny um especially like Carson being like, 
so disgusted with the whole thing. It was great. And I mean, I don't know that Julian is always that great at being self-aware. So that was kind of fun to see a little self-awareness. This was an incredibly self-aware film. Like, I think it was so funny. And I think one of the reasons it was so funny was because it was aware of um, these characters and just sometimes how silly they are sometimes. And I think the film made the most of that. I don't think you could appreciate this film if you've never seen Downton Abbey. You would just like not get it. Um, but Robert, like Robert being apoplectic every five minutes. Oh my God. He, I actually thought this was the best acting by Hugh Bonneville we've seen yet. I actually really enjoyed him. I, I really was touched by his reaction to Cora saying that she was sick. And he just kind of, I mean, of course he made it about himself. So we'll get to that. Immediately. But, yes. but the emotion that he, you know, elicited and then losing his mom. It just like, I, I just really felt his acting in this movie. He was great. And he was great because again, I think he, he knows who Robert is and um, was, was really playing it to the hilt. Um, and I mean, I think he had some of the best lines. What, uh, so I wrote one of his lines down. Oh, <laughs> a Frenchman's bastard. <laughs> oh, the ultimate insult. Yeah. My favorite line Cora said to him, which is, you're the least French person I know. You don't even like garlic. <laughs> That's awesome. I Imagine so a life without garlic. Oh, my. I know. <laughs> Sad. And, you know, Cora is, like, thinking she's dying, and he's complaining about, you know, he might be half French or something. Can we just do an aside about that? That would be the one storyline I would have cut out of this movie, is the whole Cora might be dying thing. Number one, because why did we have to see Dr. Clarkson again? Oh my god, this guy can't, he's as bad as the doctor in Arrested Development. He can't <laughs> get, get anything out right. of here. But the other thing, too, is that that disease, the pernicious anemia or whatever it's called, is the exact same thing that they used in the storyline about Isabel's husband and his illness. Not at the very oh. end of season six, which is essentially three episodes ago. Yeah. <laughs> I was just like, oh yeah. my why gosh, is Julian obsessed with this weird version of anemia that no one's ever heard of? This is a, this is a really good point. Now, he, did he have pernicious anemia or was that the misdiagnosis? That was the misdiagnosis, which apparently was fatal at the time, which is only a few years ago, but now there's a treatment. So it was as if Julian needed to go back and be like letting people know, historically, now there's a treatment. <laughs> this anemia which i assume is blood transfusions i I don't know what the difference is between pernicious anemia and regular anemia i just was like that phrase i've literally never heard it anywhere else except downton abbey here's my concern about cora and i agree that storyline could have been cut right out but my concern now is because dr clarkson has diagnosed her with pernicious anemia I'm pretty sure she actually has stomach cancer. Oh. When has he ever gotten a diagnosis right the first time? I mean, the only time was Sybil, and that's the one time they didn't listen to him. I just had this vision of, like, Matthew springing up from his wheelchair. Like, every bad diagnosis he's made. That might be the low point of the entire saga of Down Abbey. He's like, you're not going to die. And I'm thinking... No, she is going to die. It's just, <laughs> it's just not right now. Not right finish. now. They don't even mention Rose. It's like she doesn't even exist anymore. No, 
I know. What? I I know she's a big movie star now, but it is kind of strange. She was around for quite a few I seasons. I miss Rose. I would have I would have liked to see her. Oh, she would have been fun in the South she of France. Been. You know it. You know, thinking about Rose in the South of France, I just want to point out that again, the only black people you see in this movie is the band and the jazz singer. Oh, yeah. Like that's it. And they're in France. I mean, the odds of perhaps finding a black person who might be invited to this party are significantly higher than in uh, rural England. Um, right. But no, it's just, just the band. The band. Yeah. It's too bad. And if they keep going with the movies, I hope we can get, you know, more storylines where it would be natural to incorporate this, especially now we have people branching out into different kinds of business. Like there's no reason why there couldn't be folks working at the magazine or at the car dealership or wherever to incorporate into this. And, you know, I, I hope they keep going as well. They're, they keep making money. So there's really no reason not to, except for if the actors don't want to do it. But yeah, the ensemble is massive. Follow anyone, you know, as far as I'm concerned. Speaking of the car dealership, I was wondering, I wonder what's happening with that. Yeah, um, (laughs) that wasn't really mentioned. You know, there's nobody minding the store. I don't know. I feel like Tom is one of the worst written characters in the last, you know, he, what what does this man want out of life? I don't know. He's happy. He's married. They're cute. That's all fine. But their presence there, other than the link to Sibi, really brought nothing to the storyline. I was so grateful that we started with their wedding so we didn't have to like endure any kind of like courtship and engagement storyline with them. Like the less of them, the better. They are so boring. Sorry folks out there who have been shipping them and whatnot, but they are too boring. I don't even know what her name is. I think it's Lucy. Oh yeah. The actress has the best real name, though. The actress has Tuppence Middleton. Tuppence. And I, I do have a soft spot for Tuppence because she was in the cast of Sense8, and I have a soft spot for all of them. We, we know, Brandy. <laughs> but yeah, they didn't even establish whether everyone now knows that she's Maud Bagshaw's daughter or not. Right. Like, is that common knowledge now, or are we still just calling her the ward or whatever? Like... That was the only interesting part of her character, really, because she didn't do anything in the first movie besides sort of meekly smile at Tom. So that is that just dropped? Like it's very mysterious. I mean, they were in the most disturbing scene of the of the movie when when Tom got out of the water in that knit bathing suit. Oh, oh! I don't want to see it again in my mind's eye. He did everything possible to cover his crotch. I mean, he had his knee up. He had that towel. Oh, <laughs> poor Alan Leach. And he had to wear those terrible sandals. Oh, yeah, the terrible sandals. Oh, my God. I mean, they looked very practical, but they also looked like children. Oh, no, it was just awful. I mean, that was a deliberate choice to have them coming out of the water in their knit bathing suits. And I just don't understand. And mm-hmm. not just that, but that whole scene goes on and they're all like kissy and whatever. And then you see that all the older people are on the balcony directly above them, like watching them. I know that was so creepy. 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 Yeah. <laughs> Very creepy. Well, I think the next movie is Mary is the Godfather. You know, she's going to really come into her own. <laughs> the dragon woman. It's Sibby's wedding, and Mary is in the darkened small library. You come to me on the day of my niece's wedding. 
to talk about the tenant farm. Yes, that's what it's going to be. Inner henchman is Mosley. <laughs> He's a conciliary. Mosley's going to Hollywood too. Mosley's going to write, be writing his screenplays. He's going to have more money than all of them. Someday, and that day may never come, <laughs> I'll ask a favor of you. I am hoping that the next movie focuses more on Mary and Edith, because I feel like they both felt a little in the background this movie. But I'm glad we got to focus on others. But I think, you know, I'm ready to get back to the core sisters. I liked the way they were getting along. It was it still had an edge to it, but it was like we're more mature now. There's more important things going on than our squabbles. You know, like it, it, it did feel like a natural progression to me. And, you know, again, having rewatched those last episodes of season six, like when what Mary does to Edith when she gives away the secret about Marigold is like kind of a come to Jesus moment for her about like the way that she acts. And so to me, the fact that that actually would have had an, an effect on her long term feels right. Yeah, and they're also, you know, they're getting older. Like, this is, we're in 1929 now, and the show started in 1912. So this is 15 years later. Uh, sorry, 17 years later. It's not cute anymore to just be bitchy to each other all the time, right? Yeah, I mean, they're, they're a lot older, and they have kids, and they've had, you know, losing their partner and remarrying and whatever. I mean, there's like a lot. I mean, they both have children by different fathers, you know? That's kind of interesting. I'm late to comment on this, but um, did the servants get paid as extras? I don't think so, because his implication was, I can't pay the extras, and therefore, <laughs> I need help. And so their their pay was just to do something a little fun. They still have all their work to do, though. I mean, those pies aren't going to bake themselves. I just, I don't think there's a union to call at this point. Even Carson came around in the end and had fun. Oh, what a fuddy-duddy. Stick in the mud. <laughs> I hate France. I need a new hat. At the beginning, when, when he's finding out about this film thing, he's like, actors sitting at the table where the king and queen ate dinner? Like, that's like the greatest you know insult to, to Downton and the Crawleys and then Grantham. Um, and then there he is sitting at the table where the king and queen ate dinner. Exactly. Oh, good point. <laughs> that was hilarious to me too, as like the only bit of continuity from the first movie, basically. <laughs> Remember the King and Queen? Do you think Carson's ever actually seen a movie? Go to the kinema? I don't think so. I mean, this guy, you let's remember, he used to be on vaudeville, so I he's definitely like seen a play, you know. So he he should understand drama. You know, it, it pulled him in in the end, the live drama. But he's also so, like, repulsed by his history on the stage. How young was he when he was the cheerful Charlies? He must have been very young. Didn't he start, like, as a hall boy or junior underfootman or something? Junior underfootman. I don't know how young you have to be to be a hall boy. I don't know if that boy is just part of the title. I'm a 50-year-old hall boy. Yeah, Mosley could be a hall boy somewhere. <laughs> I don't, I mean, I don't know the nuances of this, even after all these years. I'd like to do a little pivot to um, just talk about one more fashion item. Why did all the men have tans? Was it just me? 
Even Murray had a tan. He's got a deep tan. Maybe this was just the trend at the time. I think everybody's just trying to get through the pandemic however they can, and they just happen to have to be in this movie. They've been vacationing at Sandals, and then they got called on set, so I don't know. We all noticed it watching the film, and I thought, well, maybe it's the screening room or, you know, something technical. And then I saw it at a completely different theater two days later, and they still (laughs) had those copper tone you know, glows. I did really love sparkly headband. Lucy's um, kind of forehead. It was almost like a, like a sparkly net yeah. headband yeah. that she wore during the, you know, her second outfit in the wedding. And I was like, hell yes, I love that. Actually, there, that seemed to be the new trend of sparkly headbands where it was sort of like more forward on the face or across the forehead. I loved it. They were beautiful. Like, lots of different styles, and even the actress, when they go see her movie, she's got some crazy headgear on that's, like, really beautiful. Yeah, they really went all out with the late 1920s outfits, and I appreciate that, because it's like, movie budget, we're gonna have some silky, sparkly stuff in here. All those drone shots. So, I mean, before we start closing out here... Teresa, we have to go over this bingo card that you made of all, speaking of all the fan service that we got just in a list. It's absolutely incredible to just see it all listed together. After uh, I saw the film with my friends um, on Saturday, we went out for drinks and um, over drinks, we decided to create a bingo card of all of these Downton Abbey tropes that they hit on. So here they are. Times are changing. Mosley does something cringy. Robert makes it about himself. Branson is told he is one of us now. Dr. Clarkson <laughs> misdiagnoses something. Mary is irresistible to men. Bingo! Mrs. Hughes lends a sympathetic ear. Cora reminds us that Robert married her for her money. Granny has a past! Exclamation mark. Uh, Carson disapproves of something. Gorgeous gowns, dowdy day clothes coy reveal of pregnancy to husband and the only black people in the film are in the jazz band amazing bingo yeah uh, speaking of mosley doing something cringy we did we did not mention his proposal <laughs> to baxter <laughs> which was recorded on the Just microphone the most awkward proposal of all time <laughs> oh dear Everyone got to listen into. I was absolutely dying during that scene. It was so funny. Poor Mosley, but you know what? He's going to be richer than all of them in a year. I know. And just all of them being like, the other servants being like, so Baxter, that's really your like dream? You're just going to wait around for Mosley? I know. <laughs> and she's like, yes, that's all I need in life. And if it doesn't happen, I'll be a spinster. No spinsters this time around. Literally everyone is paired up. There's nowhere to go from here. Yeah, I surprised me they end with like a big group wedding, like the end of a Jane Austen novel. <laughs> I think Dr. Clarkson is the only single one left. Yeah, right. <laughs> That's right. Poor Dr. Clarkson. And and uh, Denker. What's Denker going to do now? <laughs> Denker. Denker needs an... I don't know who's going to give Denker a new position now that the Dowager has passed. I don't know. I was a little bit worried about her and her future. I know. I did miss Spratt. I mean, Spratt must have lost his position maybe when they moved back into the Abbey, or maybe he's just taking care of the house. I don't know, but 
Um, I hope he's still writing his column. I, I wish he could have done it about the movie set. He would have done a great job. Uh, Maud Bagshaw, at the beginning of the film, mentioned she's moving into the Dower House. Mm. Um, now that Granny's not living there anymore. I believe that's what she was referring to. Okay. So maybe Sprat is getting it ready for her. Mm. Okay, so, you know, we've got we've got these pieces. We could have Sprat fall in love in the next episode. I keep referring it to it as an episode because it really feels that way to me. I think Sprat does have a great writing career ahead of him, though. He should go to Hollywood, too. Yeah, he and Mo- Sprat and Mosley in Hollywood, they show up at the house in Palm Springs asking for a place to stay. Oh, it writes itself. Okay, before we close out, too, I do want to share a bit of trivia that I don't know if other people know. But did y'all know that Michelle Dockery is now engaged to Jasper Waller-Bridge, who is Phoebe Waller-Bridge's brother? It made me so happy to read that because, you know, of course, her fiancé died like five years ago in a very sad battle with cancer. And I just, you know, I adore Michelle Dockery and I was so, like, sad for her as if I actually know her. And when I read that, I was just like, she found love again, just like Mary. Oh, that's that's nice. Very happy for real life love as well as doubt and love. I want to tell you that Laura Carmichael is still dating the actor who plays Andy. They have been together for a while. Oh, wow. And he... Michael Fox and Michelle Dockery have recorded an album. What? (laughs) Yes. My mouth is literally hanging open as I wait for more information about this. Unreal. Oh my God. Okay, listen. The pair, to be known musically as Michael and Michelle, first met on the set of hit TV period drama Downton Abbey. After discovering a shared love of music, the pair would jam between filming and started playing regularly as a duo with voice and guitar. Six years later, they have signed their first record deal, and a debut EP, The Watching Silence, is due for release on May 6th. So it just came out. I need to get this. I know. Side note, Therese, you should find their song for the closing of the, the outro. That's a great idea. Yes. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Well, I'm just going to call this, even though I haven't even heard it, I'm just going to call it my one fabulous thing. I think it should be all of our fabulous things. I think we should share it. It's amazing. Just Michelle Dockery being happy (laughs) is my one fabulous thing. Well, I'm so glad we all enjoyed this film because I think that this was just the balm we needed in this crazy world. And as hard as it was to lose Violet, I couldn't imagine a better send off for her. So I feel just very complete with all of it. And I really hope we keep getting one of these movies every year or every other year because I need more. And I hope they keep coming. What do you guys think? Here, here. Let's do it. Bring it on. I, I After this one being so good, for sure. So I think next we just have to wait for the Gilded Age to come back. And we'll be talking about that. So I, I, I no good fashion to look at until then. So we'll have to <laughs> rewatch the old seasons. My heart is yours Battered and bruised for God knows the cause There's a need in my chest for The blood that was lost For your love was a calming storm My mind is torn There's no way you know 
damage it's caused Is there a comfort in the glow of your loss For your love was a calming storm